Hey, I'm Alok, the host of Build the Change, a brand new podcast from MacBlue about the people at the center of progress. Join us on a journey across the country as we uncover stories about the everyday folks working together to build something bigger than themselves. Real change. You'll hear from students in Appalachia advocating for LGBTQ-friendly books in their communities, healthcare workers providing telehealth abortions across the country, immigrant farm workers fighting for their safety in the blazing sun, and candidates in states with razor-thin margins. Listen to Build the Change now wherever you get your podcasts. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Welcome to Democracy-ish. I'm Danielle Moody. And I'm Mujahat Ali. And we are delighted to be joined by Professor Jay Rosen, who is a professor of journalism at NYU and writes at PressThink, the PressThink blog, PressThink.org. Jay, welcome to you. It's always wonderful to actually talk with a professor of journalism at a time when journalism seems to be true journalism seems to be dwindling. But Waj, you're up with our jumping into our conversation. Yeah, so if for those of you who don't know, you have to follow Professor Jay Rosen on Twitter. Uh, that's where I first met him, so it's a delight to finally see him in human form and see that he's not a bot, but actually a living, breathing human being. <laughs> uh, uh, he has been using his platform uh, considerably to, to really hold uh, journalists and political journalism uh, feet to the fire and ask them to do more. That's been my take, and I, I for one, and many others appreciate it. The first question, Professor, might be a leading question. You might push back on my assumption. Let's see. Mm. But the question is this. How is the press failing our democracy in 2022, and specifically this moment where we see the ascension of right-wing authoritarianism? And if you don't agree with my my, my framing, please push back. Okay. Um... Well, I'll start this way. I think there are ways in which the press is getting its act together. Um, There are a few. We should mention them at the beginning. Um, They are, for example, uh, creating new democracy teams that are charged with examining the crisis in democracy and reporting on it. That's That's a good thing. They're training their attention more on uh, election technology, election systems, because they know that those systems are going to be under stress and under threat uh, in the next election, uh, and that's good. Um, They are um, announcing that uh, democracy is sort of at issue, uh, Mm. which is itself a good thing. It's, It's much better than assuming everything's fine with American democracy. Um, and they are sort of aware that um, that this could be in 2022, but especially in 2024, an unprecedented election. But where I think they're failing is is this: the the practices of the American press, especially during campaign season, 
are built on a foundation. And the foundation is a sort of mental picture of the two parties as roughly similar organisms Mm. that operate in the same way, but have different philosophies, different ideologies, different priorities. And so each election, these two similar organisms fight it out to to see which party is closer to where Americans are. And, And that way of thinking lies underneath all the familiar practices that we associate with campaign journalism, like, for example, uh, horse race coverage. You can only have horse race coverage if you assume that both parties are playing the same game by the same rule, because the, mm-hmm. uh, the central question of horse race journalism is who's ahead, right? Um, and so who's winning? The, who's winning, yeah. So you asked about the failure. The failure to me is to realize is, is a failure. Uh, it's, it's like an intellectual failure. The failure to realize that this mental picture on which their practices have been based is uh, gone bust because what we find now is asymmetry between the two major parties. We have one that acts like a normal party, which isn't to say that the Democratic Party is doing good or is, uh, is, is, is great at its job or even representing its constituency very well, it may not be, but it looks like a normal party, what journalists would expect the party to do and to be. Whereas the Republican Party is being overtaken by the MAGA movement, and it is in many ways withdrawing from the agreements that the two parties had for how to conduct uh, elections. And so the failure to me is a failure to realize that the practices that they have perfected uh, rest on a foundation of how the political world works, and that foundation has has collapsed, uh, and therefore they need new practices. You know, it, it's it's interesting because it, we always hearken back to the to the long lost days of Walter Cronkite and neutrality and this idea of how journalism and how the news and politics are presented. In this current iteration, though, we see this this what I find ridiculous idea of wanting to present quote unquote, both sides to issues that don't actually have two sides. Right. Um, and I, I wonder in this time of collapse in terms of the agreements that we had, the political norms that no longer exist, how is journalism or how, how, how is journalism ad- adapting to the new normal and how should it uh, Jay, be adapting to this new normal with this idea in the back of our head of both sides need equal representation in time. Well, again, both sides can only exist as a routine practice if the two sides are roughly similar in the way that they operate. Um, if one of the two major parties that have given structure to American politics has turned anti-democratic, which is the world that we live in right now, then that's not only a big story, that's a crisis for normal journalism. Um, and I think the, the both sides impulse and that, that um, instinct to uh, portray politics that way is, um, is partly 
an attempt to evade criticism. It's an anticipation mm-hmm. of bias criticism. And it's, um, it's a way of presenting yourself as um, between parties because that's considered to be a safe space. And one of the things I think our journalists have to learn is that there is no more safe space, meaning you're going to be attacked for doing your job no matter what you do. Right. And mm-hmm. therefore, you, you shouldn't um, rely on practices that are designed to evade or to blunt criticism because you're going to get criticism if you do a good job. You're going to get criticism if you do a shitty job. And so you might as well tell the truth because you're going to get sacked. Uh, you know, sort of spat at anyway. Um, and and uh, in many ways, I think the American press has learned to internalize the notion of liberal bias and kinds of obeys that critique without even being asked. And that's right. why I call the bias critique is one of the most successful propaganda campaigns ever run in the United States since the close of World War II. From the New Yorker staff writer Vincent Cunningham, a keenly observed novel of a young black man searching for his place in the world amidst a moment of historic change. Great Expectations is about David's 18 months working for the senator's presidential campaign. Along the way, David meets a myriad of people who raise a set of questions Questions of history, art, race, religion, and fatherhood that forced David to look at his own life anew and come to terms with his identity as a young black man and father in America. Inspired by the author's experiences working on Obama's 2008 presidential campaign, Cunningham uses a political campaign as his narrative backbone. Great Expectations will be one of the talked about novels of the year, Colin McCann. Great Expectations is available wherever books are sold. Hey, I'm Alok, the host of Build the Change, a brand new podcast from Mac Blue about the people at the center of progress. Join us on a journey across the country as we uncover stories about the everyday folks working together to build something bigger than themselves. Real change. You'll hear from students in Appalachia advocating for LGBTQ-friendly books in their communities, healthcare workers providing telehealth abortions across the country, immigrant farm workers fighting for their safety in the blazing sun, and candidates in states with razor-thin margins. Listen to Build the Change now wherever you get your podcasts. It's a self-policing mechanism, right? Where the right wing uh, works the refs. That's that's yeah. a, a, a sentiment that's known within these circles where they always complain. And as such, if you keep working the refs and you keep complaining, then the refs themselves and the umpires themselves realize, oh, wait, wait, we don't want to be appeared as biased. Oh, all right, all right, we'll, we'll, we'll play both sides, even though one side is not following the rules whatsoever, is promoting the deep state conspiracy, now embraces QAnon, which is a national security threat, ladies and gentlemen, according to the FBI, and by the way, calls the press the enemy of the state, which is the type of propaganda that Stalin used, not a friendly dude, ladies and gentlemen, mm-hmm. who are not historians, against the press. And here we are in 2022, right, Professor Rosen, where you talk about, well, they're going to get criticized anyway. 
So we saw 2015, this quote just haunts me, where the former president of CBS, Les Moonves, openly said, well, Donald Trump isn't good for America, but he's good for CBS. And Zucker, Jeff Zucker, kind of said the same thing for CNN. Well, you get Trump. Trump's president. Unleashes violence by targeting journalists, right? Mm -hmm. Like literally Caesar Sayoc, people forget this, had a hit list based on Trump's critics and sent out bombs. And thank God he was convicted. People could have died. So these journalists and reporters now, these political journalists that you've talked about, literally are threatened. They're intimidated. There's violence against them. They're hated. They're called Mm -hmm. enemy of the state. Fast forward to 2022, you got the CBS (laughs) co-president, according to internal memos, saying, we think Republicans are going to win the midterm, so we need to court them. You got CNN now, you know, the new president, uh, Licht, Chris Licht, and, and, you know, the the shareholder, John Malone, saying, we need to court more Republicans and go down the middle. And so I'm sitting here, can you explain this phenomenon where this, this class of journalists who have literally survived intimidation, threats, violence in 2022 are saying we're going to enable and empower the people who hate us and play both sides like how do you explain this to our listeners that the people who are being actually targeted by mega are sucking up to mega well part of it is um there's two types of voices that you're quoting there um there's the bosses who run the newsrooms and who run the, the media companies that own the newsrooms and they're free to say um, things like, uh, may not be good for America, but it's good for CBS. Um, and they're kind of um, acting from on high upon the journalists at CNN and, and uh, CBS. Um, I think it's generally admitted, even by somebody like Jeff Zucker, that they went overboard in the initial year or two of Trump coverage. Um, and they they kind of realized that that was uh, a mistake. Um, but the journalists who are closer to the ground and actually have to report on this story, um, I think they know that that things are are pretty bad, especially with Trump. Um, and I'd like to give you an example of this. A year ago, Jonathan Carl, who is um, ABC White House correspondent, also very important a past president of the White House Correspondents Association, so somebody that I would call a consensus figure in the press, was looking ahead to 2024 and the likelihood that Trump was going to win. And he said some really uh, blunt things about how challenging it was going to be to report on this guy. So he said things like, you're covering essentially an anti-democratic candidate. This is Jonathan Carl talking. You're covering somebody who's running in a system that is trying to undermine that same system. I totally agree. But again, this is John Carl. He says, um, you're going to know from the start that he's perpetually lying. Again, this is ABC's White House correspondent with what we already know before the 2024 campaign has even started. Um, he's he's used the stop the steal lie so many times. Um Carl said, so that people are going to believe it. And we can't be a conduit for that, he said. Mm. He asked, what does a debate look like with Donald Trump in it? How do you even do an interview with this guy? So what he's saying is all of the normal tools that we Mm -hmm. have for reporting a presidential election are broken. He's admitting that. 
And, and the fact Brian, I just want for the listeners to know the fact that John Carl is saying this, like that's a traditional establishment yeah. centrist down the middle, respected by Republicans, white dude. It's not mean Danielle, the crazy folks. Right. And and when Brian Stelter, who's conducting the interview, gets around to saying, okay, so how do we fix this? He really says, I don't know. Like, I don't really know, but I'm just telling you, we're going to have major problems with our traditional practices if he runs again, which most people assume that he will and probably will um, announce that rather soon. So, see, that's a little bit of a different picture because at Mm -hmm. least Jonathan Carl, who is a consensus figure in the American press, is saying, we're kind of out of answers here. Mm. Right. Um, And and that, it goes back to what I said about that mental picture that lies beneath the practices of the press. It, it's broken. It's, it's not of use. And one of the problems that journalists have is that they need a new consensus to replace the one that they used to use every four years. Because as John Carl noted, um, they face new threats. And this is the work that uh, I think is kind of missing from elite journalism, even as they appoint their democracy desks and find their democracy teams and pay more attention to threats to democracy, which is good, and start examining the election system, which is also good. They still haven't kind of confronted that their equipment is broken. You know, and and the funny part about that, which is not funny, haha, but just funny, sad, is that Donald Trump was the prototype. Now you're talking to a myriad of mm. different candidates yes. and politicians who are following the same exact playbook that Donald Trump laid out. So while you have, you know, Carl talking about, well, he's going to lie and he's going to do these things. And how do we do these interviews? It's like, well, that's the entirety of the Republican party and everybody that you sit down with, whether they're running for school board or they're running for president of the United States, they all have become a carbon copy. And so the problem here is that there is a, for what I see as a problem is that there is a nimbleness and agility that is required in today's journalism that isn't present because it has never had to be. It has been a a, a place of, of report of observation and of description and analysis. But now it's like in real time, we're not just fact checking, we're having to deliver to the American people that you are living in abnormal times. And so, you know, Professor Rosen, in, in, in that sense, you are educating, right, tomorrow's, you know, newsrooms. And, and I'm wondering, you know, what are the tools that are being discussed about how this new wave of journalists are going to have to have the agility kind of like athletes to be able to keep pace with these increasingly abnormal times. Yes. I think that image of agility is a really good one, Danielle. Um, And it is something that um, journalists are going to have to learn. Um, here's some things that I would like to see. My, my suggestions are more at the level of what I call press think, which is how the, the press models and understands these, these problems. And I try to have an impact on, on that. So some of the things that I would like to see this more agile press do is first, they have to learn how to make clear what is at stake. This is something mm-hmm. that I, I repeatedly try to get them to do. Uh, 
be clear, be blunt about what is at stake if um, this kind of candidate wins, you know, if the election system can be manipulated, if there's no security to handling the ballots, right? They have to move several steps ahead and say, this is what could happen. This is what is uh, at stake. They also have to make it clear that American democracy runs not only on the formal rules laid out in the Constitution, but the informal agreements that have always um, guided our politics, sometimes called the guardrails of democracy, that those things were really important because they prevented candidates from playing what uh, law professors call constitutional hardball, which means if you do everything to the max that's allowed in the Constitution, you eventually break democracy because so much of it works when we re- we agree on these informal rules like don't cheat the vote, right? Um, election counting and um, election administration that was bipartisan. That system existed for many decades. It's not that nobody ever tried to fool around with it or that it was totally perfect, but it was a a bipartisan agreement that we run elections in a certain way, and that's all gone now. And so we have to make it clear that, that American democracy always ran on these rules that are now almost completely ignored in some sense in some cases. Uh, and we also have to we also have to ask journalists to make it clear to themselves and to their public that when you have asymmetry between the major parties, the Republicans are trying to break the system, the Democrats are trying to win within it. And you portray that mm. symmetrically, that is distortion. So a symmetric mm. portrait of mm-hmm. a asymmetric reality is inherently a distortion, right? And my hope is that if some of these ideas, which are not super complicated or abstract to me, can get through, then the corresponding practices can be um, created in a agile, as you say, way as they are needed. Um, but it's it all goes back to the collapse of the uh, foundations on which uh, horse race, both sides, conventional journalism was created decades ago. And one of the problems we have is that a lot of the political reporters grew up in that system. Yep. And they want it to go on. That's right. <laughs> Because they want their chance at boys on the bus glory, if you see what I mean. Mm-hmm. They want yep. the opportunity mm-hmm. to do what they've always admired older journalists mm-hmm. at doing. Um, and one of the unknowns of this campaign is whether a new a new reality in American journalism, which is the arrival in newsrooms of, of a new generation that is inherently more diverse um, that it that it that agrees that America has to be a multiracial society. Those people have been, after a long struggle, hired into these mainstream newsrooms, and they don't necessarily think the same way about issues like objectivity as their editors. That's a new condition. Yeah, uh, and, there's always and, been a new generation hired into newsrooms, but they thought just like the older generation. Right. Now we now we have some conflict there. And one of the things we don't know is where is that conflict going to lead? But it's a very significant 
development. Because if you hire somebody under the uh, logic that you need a newsroom that looks more like America and you need more people from um, groups that have not supplied most of the journalists before, and then you ask those same journalists to forget where they came from and just obey the rules of the profession, that is like a, uh, a contradiction. So what happens within the frame of that contradiction is one of the unknowns about this election and, and it definitely is going to be a bigger issue in 2024. Hey, I'm Alok, the host of Build the Change, a brand new podcast from MacBlue about the people at the center of progress. Join us on a journey across the country as we uncover stories about the everyday folks working together to build something bigger than themselves. Real change. You'll hear from students in Appalachia advocating for LGBTQ-friendly books in their communities. Healthcare workers providing telehealth abortions across the country. Immigrant farm workers fighting for their safety in the blazing sun. And candidates in states with razor-thin margins. Listen to Build the Change now wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy, Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. The, those that unknown is basically summarizes Daniel and my career. <laughs> it, 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 being <laughs> the people of color who've tried our best to be blunt, to be agile, to represent these communities. Uh, people, I think, as a result of living in communities in America uh, who have seen uh, the other side of, it, of advantage have a more mm. expansive view of this country where it isn't just a horse race. It affects democracy. It affects our national security, affects our communities, affects our lives. Mm -hmm. And, and oftentimes we push up against what we call the old boy network. Uh, this old boy network of establishment journalists who want to play by the same rules where I scratch your back, you scratch my back, the system will keep running, you know, but then here comes Trump who completely demolishes it. And they still haven't been, haven't found a way to be agile. And yeah. you mentioned something about the system, the foundation, the guardrails. We all know the guardrails only matter if the guardians of the guardrails actually care uh, about using the profession and their ethics and their values to uphold it. I see Elon Musk. And, and I have to ask you about this, you know, this latest news about him taking over Twitter. What are your concerns for journalism and specifically media covering the 2022 and 2024 elections if indeed musk takes control of twitter and i have to add zuckerberg still controls facebook and we have the blitzkrieg of right-wing media vis-a-vis -vis podcast and youtube what will be the fundamental shift and how do we how do the rest of us who are trying our best maintain some guardrails in the wild wild west of social media mm. yeah I don't understand Elon Musk very well. I, I don't have a handle on how his mind works. Um, I don't think anyone does, especially yeah, Elon Musk. Especially I, I would Elon. Be, I would be very hesitant to, to predict what might go down. I, I, but I will say this. Uh, 
the place to look for the pressure is going to be on um, the, the principles uh, that you have to have some kind of moderation, that some things are out of bounds, even on an open platform. And what I would look for and, and watch out for is basically the total destruction of all practices that moderate uh, political speech um, and make it po and and just a wild west, a completely open system where there is nothing that you can't say. You know, um, there's no act of racism you can't uh, enunciate. There's no there's no moderation. There's no there's no there's no standards. That's that's I think where they are going, but. Mm. But Elon Musk is a strange character, and he does things mm -hmm. that um, that don't make a lot of sense sometimes. So, so I'm not sure about this. But going back to what you were saying earlier about being agile, um, I have, and your frustrations with this system that you accurately described, um, I've been trying to say to American journalists for several years now that they have to become more explicitly pro-democracy. Fantastic. Mm. And there's other things that go along with that. They should be more explicitly pro-truth, pro-participation, pro-voting. These are all things that journalists can rightly stand up for and protect. But when I say to... American newsrooms are people in them. Journalists have to learn to become pro-democracy. Very often the reply that I get is, oh, so you mean pro-Biden? Mm. You see what I mean? And that's no, terrifying. that's not what I mean. <laughs> that's not what I said, and it's not what I mean. But that, that is the shortcut that they take so to distance themselves from this demand, this pressure to become more genuinely pro-democracy. Now, I think being pro-democracy should be an easy call within public One service journalism. Hope. Yeah. It shouldn't really be a controversy. Right? But this reply, oh, so you mean pro-Biden, is a way to marginalize that idea and associate it with another like goblin of theirs. Um, taking sides. And yeah. I don't think journalists should be on the team. I don't think they should be taking sides. Yeah. I don't think they should be putting their thumb on the scale for one party or another. I think they should be holding both parties to the same standard of being pro-democracy. Um, but if you can manage to associate that idea, you guys have to become more explicitly pro-democracy with partisanship, taking sides, oh, so you mean vote for Biden, then you can um, dismiss it. You know, for, for me, it, it's really interesting because I've always had people confuse me as a journalist. And I tell people that I'm not, right? Mm -hmm. I'm, not a, I'm not a trained journalist. I'm an opinionator, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm somebody that analyzes and distills and then provides my opinion. You can like it, you can not like it, but I'm you know, sourcing it from a state of facts that I, and how I understand those facts to be. I say that because where, where we are is that traditional journalism, as we've been talking about, you know, in this conversation is, has shifted and is continuing to shift. 
where people are getting their information from yes. is also shifting. Who they're trusting yeah. is shifting, right? So I I have, you know, like Waj, I'm on a, a, a bunch of social media platforms trying to figure out the ways in which you know, I can best provide digestible information to people to be informed citizens in this country and take action on their own behalf. So if if journalism itself is 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 shifting in such a way that people are no longer looking at the news out, the traditional news outlets and looking at cable news and looking at the posts and the the times of the world for their information, how do you you know, again, as a professor, how are you training this these set, this next generation to be adaptable in a way that they they can move on, across platforms? Mm. They can go to fight because you need to in this state that we are in, you actually need to go find your audience because yeah. the audience has become so dis disparate. Right. So I, I'm I'm wondering how you how you move how you teach again this goes back to the agility and it goes back to the nimbleness how you're teaching in a way that doesn't have this traditional journalism and its platform as the only frame that we're operating in well two things in response to that one is the gatekeepers don't have the same power they used to have mm. and even the gatekeepers know that <laughs> um, the more Which is why honest, they're so threatened yeah the more honest of the political journalists who've been around for decades will say, um, if you ask them, we don't have the kind of power that we once had to filter and and protect the campaign. Like in 2004, you remember the uh, Swift both Veterans for Truth? Yep. <laughs> um, Old school reference. We get it. Yeah. Uh, Prior to 2004, the political press could, Kate, could keep that kind of charge that John, uh, John Kerry was like a traitor to the United States out of the dialogue. But they know they, know they can't do that, uh, and that's a foregone uh, thing. Um, but what I teach my students is, first of all, I teach them audience-centric journalism, mm. starting by understanding your audience, talking to your audience. Um, I teach product design, because I think new products are needed in this mm. environment. And I want my students to know how to create good products that respond to some of the challenges that is that we've been talking about. Uh, another pillar of my graduate program I, where I teach project-based learning as well is solutions journalism, uh, in which um, we try to figure out public problem solving as well as talking about problems and what does it take to solve them. Mm. I think that's um, an important thing as well. Um, and uh, you put those things together, audience-centric journalism, new products, uh, solutions as well as problems, and it gives the graduates more tools. Now, in an um, election contest, I have been advocating for many years a different approach to campaign journalism that starts with the voters rather than with the candidates and uh, who's ahead. And I, it's called the citizen's agenda style of election coverage. And it's fairly simple. You start your election coverage with a question you ask of the people you're trying to inform. First, you have to decide who are the people that we're trying to reach, who are the people we're trying to inform. And then you ask them in every way you can over and over, 
what do you want the candidates to be talking about as they compete for votes? Mm. What do you want the candidates to be talking about as they compete for votes? And if you can ask that question enough times to enough people, you'll start to find there are patterns in their answers. And out of those patterns, you can create a kind of agenda or priority list for the campaign coverage that comes not from the handlers, not from the candidates, not from the ads or the polls, but from the voters. And if you can discover that citizen's Mm -hmm. agenda, you can use it to keep your campaign coverage on target with real people as opposed to going off in the direction of the latest controversy, the newest poll, the latest attack, you have something to serve as counterweight Mm. to what we know the distracting rhythms of campaign journalism will be. Uh, And so that kind of approach, a citizen's agenda approach, uh, which is an innovation that's been around actually for like 30 years, can help address some of the... um, predictable lapses in campaign journalism. But precisely the fact that it's been around for 30 years tells you that if political journalists wanted alternatives, they were there. They don't want alternatives. They want their chance at at horse race journalism. And there might be a handful, maybe those that are people of color, people of, of groups that have traditionally been pushed out or left out, of the press, maybe they'll be able to uh, uh, have a different agenda. But right now, the people covering politics are are basically um, the next wave of of boys in the bus. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Well, Professor Rosen, we thank you so much for first educating mm. the, the the next crop, the next generation of journalists that we will so desperately need, but also for your time uh, in joining us on Democracy-ish. Um, thank you for listening to Democracy-ish. I'm Danielle Moody. And I'm Mujahat Ali. And we are both biased in favor <laughs> of democracy. Us, us, us crazy radicals on this show, inspired by Professor Jay Rosen. Thank you. Thank you, Danielle. Thank you so much.